in today's show, everything you say in a coffee shop is everybody's going to hear. And I don't, I, I want to go somewhere else. So I get that what you're talking about. So I had this whole idea, but at the end of the day, when the coach was talking to me about all this stuff, he's like, okay, uh, you can't do the coffee shop. Like that's, that's going <laughs> to so far derail everything. And I'm like, yeah, but I want this consumer con connection. So, so Mo, I will live vicariously through you and Vel, and I will be supporting you. And when you open one here in Nashville, I'll be a customer. I'm ready. <laughs> oh, we're ready to get there. It's amazing how many people want us to come there already. Um, it's uh, it's one of those you know ideas that it's it's really valuable. You know, coffee shops have been around for forever. This third space was the library when I was a boy. Um, today it doesn't really exist um, as a coffee shop experience. You know, Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. God bless them. They own 65% of the market, but they're actually shrinking their footprint and they're going to the to-go model. So drive-through is really valuable. They're trying to shrink real estate, sell more product. I mean, that's their mandate. In today's ultra-competitive business world, being a successful entrepreneur or business owner can be very challenging. Fortunately, contemporary times have blessed us with resources for tackling those challenges and getting us to success more quickly than we could have imagined. Welcome to The Root of All Success with The Real Jason Duncan, a podcast that explores how the world's most powerful entrepreneurs grow incredible companies. This podcast looks at the five keys to unlocking success as an entrepreneur. A successful educator turned entrepreneur, Jason's mission is to use his gifts of teaching and leadership to help others get the results they want out of life. Join Jason every week and learn the keys to grow a truly successful business. Welcome back to the show. I'm the real Jason Duncan. And man, I have got a really great conversation on tap for you today. This guy, Mo Hamzian, uh, we met through his broker who got him onto my show and uh, didn't realize, obviously didn't know him, but didn't realize how much we had in common. But you're going to have a cool story today from a guy who was born in Iran, immigrated into the UK as a kid, lived there most of his adult life, and then recently over the last five years moved here to the United States. And his entrepreneurial journey is one to behold. It's some, it's some pretty cool stuff. And what he's working on now, the concept VEL, which he's the CEO of a company called VEL, V-E-L, uh, is going to revolutionize the coffee shop that we experience on a daily basis. And we're going to talk a little deeply about that. But let me, let me give you a little bit of background on Mo. He's a co-founder and CEO of the company Vell, as we talked about, but that's not only thing he's done. He had a very successful real estate career. And before that, he was in the publishing business. All of these things led him to be where he is today. He's a serial entrepreneur. He has a very dynamic background. He's a London Business School Sloan Fellow. Uh, he's an established leader with 20 years experience in nearly all things business, and he excels at growing businesses and creating value. And he has successfully exited projects with a total value of over $150 million. And so by you tuning in today, whether, whether you're on a podcast player or you're watching this on YouTube or C-Suite TV, I want to thank you for being here because it's you being here that gets me awesome guests like Mo. So if you haven't subscribed, if you haven't left a five-star review, make sure you do that. Now, let me introduce you and you help me welcome Mo Hamzian. Mo, thanks for being on the show today, man. I'm really excited about our conversation. Thanks for being here. Yeah, Duncan, good to meet you. I'm uh, so happy to be here. I watch your show, listen to your show. Uh, I'm a fan. Well, that means a lot. That really does mean a lot because 
you know, we were talking pre-show, you and I got connected through um, through an agent. I think your agent to reach out to me and get me on the show. So it's always flattering to have super, super successful people like you reach out to me and say, hey, I want to be on your show. Because I, I look at myself as I'm just this little nobody in Nashville, Tennessee doing this show. And and to have people like you uh, come on the show is uh, is a really an honor, and so I'm really looking forward to meeting you here today because we really don't know each other. I've got a, <laughs> I, you know, I've got your intro and your bio, and that's about it, man. So I'm excited to get to know you. So you uh, you're coming from to us from uh, somewhere in Northeast Florida today. So how's the how's the weather in Florida? It's it's nice in Nashville right now, but it's supposed to snow a couple inches this weekend. It's it's in the middle of March. This is crazy. We don't ever get snow like that. But how's it going down in Florida? Well, it's raining. And as you can probably tell, and you audience probably tell in a few minutes, I'm English. And because it's raining here, I'm slightly homesick. You know, it rains all the time in England. And, uh, and believe it or not, I've, I've been here for four or five years, and we'll talk about it, but I still think in Celsius. So, so whatever, whatever I, I, you know, I try to tell people what temperature it is. I know what Fahrenheit means, and obviously, but I feel, I feel temperature on my skin in Celsius. So um, for Florida, it's, it's pleasant. Uh, it's not too hot. It's raining. Well, I wish I knew Celsius. All I know about Celsius is that zero is freezing, and that makes sense. <laughs> we're, we're in Fahrenheit, 32 is freezing, and that doesn't make sense. So I don't understand why we Americans have, have stayed on that scale when the rest of the world seems to have gone the other direction. But here we are. So how long, as you said, you've been here in the States for five years. Is that right? I did. I moved, you know, I moved in 2016. And Europe and UK was going through a major transition back then. Um, and Brexit was happening. And Brexit was this idea that um, Europe wanted, and Europe and UK wanted different sovereignty, and they wanted to kind of separate. And we had a bit of a vote um, that said, do you want to stay in Europe? Do you want to leave Europe as a, on a referendum basis? So the, the, the people got to say which way they wanted to go. And we voted out. And very quickly, I realized there's an enormous headwind coming to the UK and my family and I decided let's uh, let's look what let's look at other markets to to go and look at for the next 10 years or so. So you moved here uh, as a result of the Brexit vote is that is that fair to say? Pretty much pretty much you know and moving countries even in today's market is what an imperfect decision that is. In, you, know, in, you know imperfect information <clears throat> you're not making great choices um, you know you haven't tested before you buy you are switching costs are high. Everything about it is difficult. Um, but retrospectively speaking, um, it was a great decision to have made back then. So you said you moved your family here. So tell me a little bit about your family. So um, married with a kid, um, small family. Um, family, you know, fam the family nucleus is, is again, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, now over a drink at some point. In Europe, it's slightly different. Europe is a very dense market. So people have one and a half children, you know, maybe one. Uh, a lot of my friends actually don't have any kids. So a family of three is perfectly normal. Where I've come to the U.S., it's such a pleasure because a lot of, actually my co-founder, he's a family of five, he's got three kids. So in, in U.S. terms, and relatively speaking, my family is, uh, is small, but in, in U.K. terms, it's, uh, it's standard deviation. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got a lot more room to move around here than they do in the U.K., huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. And, you know, it's not it's not just just to interrupt. It's not just the population of the U.S. that makes it so magnificent as a single market. You know, it's got you know six, seven times the population of the U.K., but it's also that attitude. It's that mentality of anything is possible. And, and that's some of the keys to success. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. 
Yeah, we. Um, so, what do your what do your what is your wife and kid? What 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 do you guys think? What do they think about the living here? Man, what's not to love? Right now, we live by the beach. My wife is South African, and South Africans are quite adventurous. You know, she lived by the beach. She grew up by the beach, and both of us grew up in the countryside. So we weren't really, you know, living in a city and used to it. Although we lived in London, loved it, um, and my kid loves it here. What what's not to like? You know, um, the weather is great. Um, you know. America is a large single market, lots of entertainment, you know, really good standard of living. Did you go straight to Florida when you moved here or did you go somewhere else first? No, I did. I went straight to Florida and you may ask why we had it. We had a place here and we came, came for holiday and came back and holiday and came back. And every time I came to the US, I came with a smile. <laughs> every time I went back on the plane, we were miserable. We were moping around, you know, wondering why are we going back? And in the end, when we decided, you know, UK is not right at the moment for us. It was a natural progression to say, well, we have a place in Florida. Let's go and try it there. Yeah, well, you're in a good spot there. That that's that section where you're at, Amelia Island's a very, very beautiful area. Um, there's a spot down there called uh, Ormond by the Beach, Ormond by the Sea, I think. I don't know if you know where that is. It's south of where you are, I think. My wife and I discovered it quite by accident over um, we were between Thanksgiving and Christmas. We did a two week trip down to Key West in our RV. And on the way back, my wife was like, let's let's kind of find let's find somewhere on the way back on the on the on the east coast of Florida to to camp on the beach. And we found that by accident as we were driving, she was on the laptop kind of figuring out where to go. and We found it. And so that was the first time we'd ever spent any time in that northeast section of uh, Florida on the coast. And we loved it. We absolutely loved it. So welcome to the U.S. We're glad you're here. I've got another I've got another colleague of mine who a similar story to yours. He's from he's from the U.K. and he lives now in the Hilton Head, South Carolina area, which, again, not, not terribly far from where you are, but just north of where you are. And he came he, he they were doing holiday back and forth with the family and decided we just want to live here. And they've been here much longer than you. I think they've been here 20, 25 years. They've been here a long time, but, but welcome to the U S. So now let's get into your story of a business. So when, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs that I talk to, they have these really uh, these stories about as a kid, they were doing things that led them into entrepreneurship or some will say, well, I didn't really think about it until college. Others, it wasn't until they're an adult. That was my story. I didn't become an entrepreneur until I was in my thirties, but what, uh, so what's your origin story as an entrepreneur? Yeah, you know, I, I, I was born in, a, uh, in, in Iran and for the first 10, 10 years of my life, I was there. And in the 1970s, you know, the country was war and revolution. So for 10 years of my life, um, life was very, very turbulent um, and, and transient and enormously insecure. You can imagine living in that kind of environment, highly stressful. And in the end, we managed to leave and we came to the UK and we adopted UK as a home in the mid 80s. And then soon after that, I went to boarding school. Within two years, um, I, went to, I went to boarding school. And within a year of going to boarding school, and I'm, I'm coming to this idea of entrepreneurship, I realized one thing fast and, and, and rapidly, that um, ultimately you put your head on the pillow at night alone, and therefore you need to live with those decisions, um, whether they're good or bad. And your aspirations are yours. Um, so once I realized, I realized that it became enormously in, empowering. Um, and I realized um, in boarding school, when you're on your own and you, you're foreign and you're immigrant, particularly in the 1980s and early 90s, there's there's a lot of prejudice, you know, um, far more so uh, then than today. Which meant you have to solve a lot of problems. Some of them are micro problems, some of them are larger problems. So you become very good 
add solution. Um, then once you realize that, you realize you're on your own, you have a lot of power, you can problem solve, um, then, and doing that can create value and you can make money out of it. And those, those were the seeds from the age of like 10 to 16 that drove me to realize, actually, this, this could be a really fun path. So problem solving came natural to you and you saw that as a way to enter entrepreneurship. How big of a difference do you think it is being a problem solver versus a problem finder? Well, I mean, you know, you could say that, you know, that line from the matrix, you know, you could say if you solve problems, problems find you, you know, and, and therefore you have to deliver solutions. Or if you are good at solving problems and there are lots of problems around the world, some of them are itches and scratches or some of them are major pain points, whether it's in social dynamics or geopolitics or commerce. And that's why value is created because you can solve those problems. Um, so I say inherent in me is to see problems, but in a very optimistic way. I'm, I'm impatient, but I'm optimistic. I, know, I remember having a conversation with one of my employees a long time ago, and uh, we were talking about problem solving and how much problem solving was a skill that, uh, that employees needed to have in order to be effective and indispensable in the workplace. And, um, but what, what happened, what I found is that from an employee perspective, uh, if you continue to drive that message home to your employees and be problem solvers, problem solvers, problem solvers, they're not looking for problems or waiting for someone to say, here is a problem, now go fix it. Where entrepreneurs tend to be the problem finders and the problem solvers. So I told him, I said, listen, I don't need problem solvers. I got lots of problem solvers. I need problem finders. I need you to go find the problems. And that completely, that changed his mind shift such that he ended up becoming, you know, he, he is absolutely one of my key employees uh, one of the vice presidents of my company and has been the longest tenured employee that I've got. So I've, I've, that's why I asked that question. I wondered what your perspective was. So let me, let me ask you this. So in uh, 10 to 16, your problem finding and solving entrepreneurship is starting to bubble up in your blood a little bit. When did you start your first real company? I mean, not just making money, whatever it was you were doing as a kid, but like, when did you start your first real company? Yeah. So straight out of university or college 21 um i still hadn't quite cracked on to what i want to do my father was an is um a major patriarch you know alpha male has had lots of successes and and also failures um but i knew family business or working with my father is is not conducive um it's not you know i it's you know you need your own path especially as as a as a man you know and and i did that so after university, uh, a friend of mine started a, was starting a publishing company, and I bought into that. And it was a uh, it was producing, you know, the Balkans and Eastern Europe was a major thing in the in the mid nineties to the late nineties. It was still this, un, you know, still ex Soviet bloc. It was uh, it was an undiscovered territory, but lots of wealth and affluence, particularly in manufacturing and tourism and travel. So we produced a publication that would shed light on those territories. It would shed light on those opportunities. And it was a it was a you know a circulated analog publication with a really good circulation and advertising revenue subscription revenue, and I realized doing that for several years and I sold out um, out of it. I realized that information is really really important and people pay pay for it for reliable information. And this is still you know ninety six was internet kind of the start of the internet and the real boom only started in nineteen ninety two thousand. So this was pre that. But realizing that good information and data is key 
um, helped me later on down the life. And after that, we'll talk about it, but I, I, I fell into real estate. So you started in the publishing business and uh, you bought in, made some money, eventually sold your shares in that. Uh, did you go straight into real estate next? I did. I was at a, you know, funny story. I was at a dinner party and I overheard a deal in real estate. And um, these two people were boasting about, they bought this piece of land and they'd done X, Y, Z to it. And they managed to put a building and flip it and made this level of return. And my kind of ears went ping. And I was like, well, why can't I do that? <laughs> let, me, let me find out more. And I did. I, I took the money that I had from, from the sale of the publishing business and I did exactly that. So this is now like 1999, 2000. And I, I, I bought a piece of land. And, and, you know, in England, adding value requires a lot of cajoling and permits and planning and design are really, really important. So you front load the value you, you make. And often, you know, you've made your profit in what you've bought and not what you've sold. Um, so solving early on problems and managing risk is really, really important. But fortunately, I, was, I got very, very lucky. And uh, deal number one was a great success. And, I, and you know, the, the young man in you goes, I'm really good at this. <laughs> um, not knowing that, you know, luck had a, had a major role to play in it. And, and then it was more about repeat, improve, become more sophisticated, um, larger project, more complicated risk, better financial engineering, you know, better assets, larger buildings, um, offloading larger number of units. Um, and that, that took about 10 years of my life um, until I fell into something else. All right. Well, let's break that down because I really feel like that there's a key in that. One of the things that listeners to the show know that I talk about these five keys of success, you know, and being at the right place at the right time is one of those keys. And, and you just gave that story from your own story is you're at this dinner party and you overhear these two people talking about this deal. Do you, did you know these two people or do you know them today? I don't, I don't know them today and I didn't know them then. And I didn't really press buttons too much um, because I, I didn't want to be dissuaded. I knew in that moment, if I have that conversation, you know, sometimes ideas are fragile and you need to go and, you know, you know, you need to go and nurture them for them to become valuable. And sometimes you need to do that quickly, but by yourself or quickly or with, a, with an inclusive team. So I knew if I go and speak to them, they might you know, give me information at that moment that will you know, pierce my motivation or inspiration in that moment. So I went away and did my own homework um, and realized in fact that they're definitely onto something. Well, isn't it funny that real estate seems to be one of the things that most entrepreneurs either have done or interested in or learn about or learn from, I, I, you know, the rich dad, poor dad book. I, I'm sure you've read it or right. you, you don't know what I'm talking about. I think that that book talks so much about understanding real estate as this asset class that could pro pro provide true, true passive income or large chunks of money through very small amounts of time investment. So uh, congratulations for your success in real estate. And I'm, Really glad you went to that dinner party. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Real estate is one of those trans um, businesses that, you know, it's simple, but it's not easy. Um, and there are many ways to come at it. Um, you know, I, I wasn't really into the rental game, into the, into the yield of real estate. I was much more into buy land, develop, spend money for two years, um, 
and 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 un, unload value after two years with, with you know low density building low density apartments. Um, so it was more of a project by project. What that taught me was that each project was its own mini startup. It was its own mini entity, legal entity, structure, funding, brand, product, team. So for two years, that was a mini startup. And it was, you know, acquire, build, grow, add value, exit. <laughs> so it was a series of project exits. And each, each one of them, you know, were major multiples, large denominations. So that set me up for this startup VC culture of buy, add value, exit. Um, so had I maybe gone into the yield world of hold cash flow, um, it would have been a it would have been a different story for me. Yeah, so so that's an interesting perspective on the real estate. So your your interest at the time, and and we'll get to what you're doing now, but your interest at the time doing real estate was more the big cash out through exiting. So you kind of like today, it's very famous to do fix and flips, whether commercial or residential, mostly in residential, you buy it for a certain amount of money, you spend six, eight months working on it, lots of capital infusion. But in the end, when you sell it, you walk with this huge, huge payout, as opposed to a lot of people are into real estate for the cash flow purposes. And that is my primary interest in real estate personally is for cash flow. But uh, it's interesting that there's so many different ways to make money in real estate, isn't there? I mean, it's it just, it's crazy. It's amazing. Partly the yields were so low in England. You were, you know, if you were breaking three, 4%, you know, cap rates, it was okay. It was just the, the property values were so high and the rents weren't as high. So that wasn't, that wasn't a feasible it's, it's different now, but that it was much more and tax tax, um, Taxation structure was much lend itself better to purchase, build, exit um, at the time. Again, things have changed slightly, um, and it's more fun. It was it lend itself better to my personality, my skill set, which was find a problem, whether it was a design problem, a a financial problem, or an asset problem, fix it, build it, which is enormously exciting because you're building product. Um, and you know you're building team around that product, and then sell it, which is marketing, sales and marketing, exit strategies, maximizing value, um, making sure the returns are there. So it had a a, a richer life cycle for me, um, and and maybe that's why I stuck with it. When you were in real estate, um, I would be interested to know, and if you're feel, if you're comfortable or free to share, um, like financially. When you're for for cash flow purposes, there are certain percentages that you can expect on residential rentals, long term rentals, short term rentals, et cetera, or commercial leases. But on the fix and flip, as you and again, that's a that's a, a a very it's probably not the great example of what it was you were doing. But on that side of things, where you're fixing it, building value, and you're finding the problems, and then you exit. What type of financial income would you make off of the deal? I mean, could you share one deal like, hey, we put in X number of money and we had walked away with this to give entrepreneurs out there who are interested in this to know, oh, this is what's possible. Well, in, in Europe, I've done deals both in, in Europe and UK. The, the barrier to entry is much higher. Um, uh, so it, you, the cash level you need to get in is much higher. So the dynamics are slightly different, um, but the returns are nonetheless the same. But in terms of returns, we wanted a 35% return on equity, annualized return on equity. So if, if we put in a million dollars cash, we wanted $350,000 at the end of year one. Usually the projects were two years. So we, we really wanted to double our money in two years time, double our equity, but that was leverage um, equity. 
Um, and, and most of the deals were about um, were between seven hundred and fifty and two million pounds, or it was about three million dollars cash. Wow! And did it? And did you? Of course, you had some money from the uh, publishing business that you seeded that with, but you used the word leverage. So you were leveraging most of that cash with other partners and with uh, institutional money. Is that how that worked? That's pretty much it. It's like mezzanine finance. You would get about 70 percent debt from construction loans. Um, they weren't cheap. Six and a half, seven percent. Um, depends on your background. Er- earlier on, I was I was paying closer to nine to 10 percent. Um, but then you would stabilize it once uh, as construction progressed. You know, the risk in carry dropped because you're making more progress. Um, and so but you would you would you could freeze interest. You would get a grace period during the development. You could roll up the interest. You, ha- you didn't have the cash flow burn of, of <clears throat> payment of interest. And you just embedded that or baked that into the total loan. That was uh, that was that was perfectly fine. Um, but, you know, you had a term. This, the, the hardest part was it's a 36, year, 36 month term. And you know you'll finish in 24 months. You have 12 months to offload 40 units, 30 units. Um, you never wanted to go to your bank, you know, month 20 and say, "Can we extend, please?" Um, because that's suddenly very, very expensive. Um, so there are some stresses and some risks in England. You know, I, for instance, I purchased a police station, and you know, you go into it without any planning consent. You have to buy that asset with total risk knowing that you may not be able to make the units you want to make because you might not get the permit from the council. And you have to be okay with that and make those calculations of worst case scenarios. So you have to be able to move, move fast and make some really difficult decisions. Well, isn't that, I mean, isn't that the story of the entrepreneur? The entrepreneur is separated from the business owner. The entrepreneur is separated from the corporate employee on two factors, risk and innovation. And so on the risk side, you have to be able to accept and understand and calculate that risk, just like you did on buying that police station. And then on the other side, you've got to be able to innovate. Like, how do you turn a police station into units that people can occupy? Um, that innovative, that innovative spark and that ability to withstand risk is what separates entrepreneurs from business owners. And so, so many people are business owners, and they they consider they call themselves entrepreneurs, but they're not because they don't they don't take any risk, they don't do any innovation of, of any of any kind. But then on the other hand, you've got a lot of people that are uh, entrepreneurs that don't own businesses, and that's the weird thing. It's like you can be an entrepreneur and a business owner, or you can be a business owner or an entrepreneur. Uh, you don't you're not necessarily the same in any time. But it sounds like to me, you not only were a business owner, but you're definitely playing in the entrepreneurial space as one taking risk in the real estate. So I want to, I want to recap for the listeners to hear what you did. So you took seed money uh, from, from the sale of the, uh, the publishing company, you put down, uh, I assume there were probably partners involved at some point, but you 30% equity into the project, but then you would double your money. You would double your money within two two years in spite of the fact that you're paying nine and 10% interest rates, which is, which is crazy, but you know, short-term hard money, that's actually cheap <laughs> for short-term hard money today. I mean, uh, one of my companies is a hard money lending company and our, our interest rates are a lot higher than that, but it's, it's accessible. You can get to it really, really quickly. So good job for you on that. Now, how long did you stay into the real estate market before you moved to your next big adventure? We're going to take a break from our show right now to bring you our sponsors. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. I was, um, you know, real estate is one of those things. Once you're in, you're in for life um, because, uh, because of the knowledge is so powerful. Um, so I've maintained, I don't have any real estate investments, significant investments now. Um, I'm, I'm in a different stage in my life. I'm doing something else. But that knowledge, I think, is going to stay with me forever. So I hope to carry that into the future. But really, in terms of as a dominant force in my life, it was about 10, 12 years. Okay. And, and then I, through real estate, I, one thing real estate didn't offer me was direct contact with consumer. Um, I really missed acquiring consumer. Um, you build wonderful products, but then it's behind the veil of, of realtors and agents, and they sell it on your behalf. And you really, you know, that is it. And it's, it's transactional and you're done. You know, same customers aren't, unless you're a national home builder, um, those same customers aren't buying from you again. So it was, um, it was a bit disappointing. And every time I sold it, I found selling those assets slightly bit of an anticlimax because I wasn't acquiring customer. And, and then I wasn't able to retain customer because they weren't even my customers. Um, so I fell into a food and beverage deal um, in England. And, and then I suddenly, this is when I realized this is what's been missing in my commercial life is this idea of you know, lower check values, being able to involve a real kind of full dynamic of business, which is marketing, acquisition, sales, growth strategy. Um, and again, when I was in real estate, it was much more opportunistic. So you would buy a deal, exit, jump into another deal. Towards the end, you buy another deal. Maybe you're running two at the same time, but there was no real investment theme to it, at least, at least for me. And maybe had I had an investment team, I would have been much more successful and I would still have been doing it. Um, we'll never know. But the food and beverage side of things really offered that to me. You know, I, I'm, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the consumer contact because you and I evidently are much more like than we probably would have known otherwise, because the businesses that I've run in the past, the businesses that I've owned had were, were B2C or excuse me, B2B. And they, you know, it was very, as you said, transactional. We do these huge multimillion dollar projects and then we're done. We walk away. And while I do get interaction with some of the, you know, the CEO folks or CFO folks during the project, it's not, it's not the same as selling a cup of coffee to somebody at a coffee shop, you know what I mean? So, or, or food and beverage, like you're talking about. So I think I have the same thing, which is why for me, you know, I'm my next big adventure is I'm I'm hoping to buy a motorcycle dealership. So I'm actually uh, under LOI right now with that because, you know, is it going to be hard work? Yeah. Is it going to be tough? I'm going to have to get back in the trenches. Sure. But I'm really desire a business where I have consumer contact and I don't, I haven't had that in the past as an entrepreneur. So I'm really interested to know uh, what you think more about that. Is that what Vell is doing? Tell me, tell me about how you scratch that itch of wanting to have the consumer contact and then how that plays into your company Vell. Oh man, Vell offers everything there is to give. I, I, I wake up, I kid you not when I say, I know it sounds a bit grand voice, but I wake up 4, 4.30 in the morning, like, um, you know, um, so sharp, ready to go. And um, it's quite incredible, this chapter of my life that I've been doing this for such a long time that I have this kind of new vigor um, for something so dynamic in my life. So Vell is, is exactly that. I think it, it, touch, it touches on all things that I've been looking for personally as an operator. Uh, put aside how incredible the value proposition is, what we're building, 
and what we're doing and our mission behind it. But personally, it's enormously satisfying. Um, uh, so if, if you and I met, and I, I tongue in cheek, but if you and I met, Duncan, in a, in a short elevator ride, and you said, Mo, I haven't seen you for a while. What are you doing in your life these days? I would say, Duncan, we're trying to bring to market the love child of Starbucks and WeWork. We think coffee shops are great. Um, they sell great coffee, great pastry. But if you want to work out of a coffee shop, you're pretty much stuck. So we wanted to ask what the new version of a coffee shop would look like, today's market version of a coffee shop would look like. What would happen if GoPro made a coffee shop or Google made a coffee shop. So we went away and for the last 15, 16 months from ground up, started building that product, building that brand. And lots of really interesting people are behind us at the moment. That is really cool. So that's the bell. That's what you guys are doing is trying to figure out how to marry the WeWork, this co-working concept with a really good coffee experience, third place experience. I think that's what Starbucks is referred to a lot of people as a third place. You got your home, you get work, but then there's this third place. So tell me a little bit more about what you guys are doing to make that a unique opportunity and experience for your customers. So we started with exactly that. We started with experience and we started with brand. We said we needed a good brand promise. Um, we needed an identity that is going to drive product pricing, where we go, where we don't go. So we spent about a year building brand and building space and space blueprint. One thing we've become very, very good at, um, you know, anyone can make a microchip the size of a suitcase, you know, in the olden days, but today, can you make a microchip that will fit in a, in a, in a phone? And, and that's been our real kind of mantra is anyone can make 5,000, 6,000 square feet singing and all dancing bells and whistles, but can you do that at 500 square feet? Can you make, um, sufficient revenue out of 500 square feet, offer the seating variety, offer the technology, the acoustic value for people to be able to come in micro environments and do really good quality work. So for us, it was like a ground up experience building of saying, what, what does acoustics mean? What does privacy mean? What does air quality mean? What does hygiene and lighting? What happens if you're left-handed versus when you're right-handed? Um, what do these things mean in a coffee shop setting because coffee shops are really precious. There are these kind of transactional moments where you can go in anywhere, that anyone can go into a coffee shop and for $10, $15 an hour, you, you, know, you can have a really good experience. Um, so we wanted to recreate that. Well, it's funny that you mentioned uh, where you're talking about coffee and you're doing a coffee shop because if you go back two years when I exited um, ELS, which is a company I started back in 2010, um, one of the things when I started working with my business coach about what's the next big adventure, because at the time I only owned, that was the only company I'd owned. Well, since then I've started five or six others and done these things, but I, but on my list of things, my, co my coach said, okay, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I got this nonprofit idea and I got this coaching business idea and I've got this podcast idea and I've got, I want to do a coffee shop, you know, and I, really literally I, I had this idea very much like what you're talking about. It's, it's, this is really funny how we're so similar here, but I had this coffee shop and I had the, the name, the concept, the feel, the acoustics to me are very important. There's a coffee shop. My wife loves to go here locally. I won't go because the acoustics suck. I can't have a private conversation. Everything you say in that coffee shop is everybody's going to hear. And I don't, I, I want to go somewhere else. So I get that what you're talking about. So I had this whole idea, but at the end of the day, when the coach was talking to me about all this stuff, he's like, okay, uh, you can't do the coffee shop. Like that's, that's going <laughs> to so far derail everything. And I'm like, yeah, but I want this consumer Con connection. So, so Mo, I will live vicariously through you and Vel, and I will be supporting you. And when you open one here in Nashville, 
I'll be a customer. I'm ready. <laughs> oh, we're ready to get there. It's amazing how many people want us to come there already. Um, it's uh, it's one of those you know ideas that it's it's really valuable. You know, coffee shops have been around for forever. This third space was the library when I was a boy. Um, today it doesn't really exist um, as a coffee shop experience. You know, Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts, God bless them, they own 65% of the market, but they're actually shrinking their footprint and they're going to the to-go model. So drive-through is really valuable. They're trying to shrink real estate, sell more product. I mean, that's their mandate. Um, and co-working as a category is a membership experience. It's a commute. It's a warehouse experience. You've got to, you've got to, there are a lot of frictions to go to a co-working experience. It's not necessarily near you. And what do you do if you only want, if you want a place to work for six hours a week? Do you pay $300 a month for six hours a week? No, you don't. Therefore, you go to a coffee shop. So we're trying to complement. We're not substituting anywhere. We're complementing your home office, complementing the fact that you don't have an office or you don't want to commute. If you want six to eight hours a week of power use from a coffee shop, then you'll come to us. So what is the stage of development of Vell right now? Is that a reality in a certain location or locations already? Yeah. So, you know, like good startups, we've had uh, two funding rounds. We are actually in round two. I'm happy to report we are oversubscribed, which is a terrific feeling. Um, we've got a great advisory board. We were, we were one, became two. We're now a really nice team with 65 investors. Um, and we are about two months from launching shop number one in Savannah, Savannah, Georgia. We are trying to button down location number two in Charlotte. And then if we get Charlotte, then location three and four will probably be Charleston and Jacksonville. And we'll grow from there. Um, That's so great. Exciting times ahead. That is great. Well, I was going to say, listen, if you need investors, talk to me, but like, it looks like you got, you got that handled. <laughs> so good for you, man. Well, when did you start Vell? I know conceptually it was probably been bubbling up in the back of your mind for a really long time, but when did it, when did it officially kind of launch and you started seeking investors? Summer. Well, we didn't start, in, we didn't start the fundraise till last year, but it started in summer 2020. Um, I, I, I sort of, the idea found me, the problem found me. I, saw, I tried solving it. I realized within weeks of, of the campaign, solopreneurs are statistically far less successful. Um, they're more risky as, as, a, as a business if you're doing something by yourself. So I, I knew Jack, my co-founder and CEO. He lives on the island with me, a really amazing guy, um, you know, very, very smart. I said, and he was in finance and wealth management. I said, Jack, the story goes, I said, Jack, why don't you stop selling money and come and sell some coffee with me instead? And... Uh, you know, within minutes, I mean, not really, but within weeks, he said yes, um, which was terrific. I thought he was having a midlife crisis um, when, when, he, when he said yes. And he said, yeah. So we spent about four months, honestly, in the middle of the pandemic, driving down up and we did about 7,000 miles. I'm driving up and down the country, field testing, coffee shops, co-working. And even in the thick of pandemic, every coffee shop we walked to, there about 16, 17 laptops working. Um, so it was, it was eye-opening. So we then started building this value proposition, and then we started fundraising in January 2021. Um, we had our first round closed in uh, in February, and and then continued then and opened up another round about three months ago. Do you do you remember when Starbucks charged for Wi-Fi access? Do you remember that? I do remember that. Isn't that crazy? I mean, every once in a while, I remember going into Starbucks and them and saying, wow, yeah, they charge for the access. I'm not doing it. And when they finally released it to public Wi-Fi, you know, I was like, 
this is this is why we've come here anyway. And I know their bottom line had to increase, you know, significantly. Well, so is your model with Vell, is it going to be a corporate model where you're going to own own stores or are you going to franchise this? Or have you thought about that? That's such a good question. I think it's too early for us to answer, although some decisions will alienate one direction over another. I think so. We want to, in the short term, in the next five to seven years, own IP, have real, real control over the brand and the value proposition. Um, So, you know, once we get to 10 or 20 of these, and I think that will happen in in the next couple of years, we can make some new decisions. But in the short term, we really want to hold IP um, and be able to innovate. Why? Because we think robotics are going to be a major thing. We think customization and curation in a coffee shop are going to be a major thing. What if space could change? If we franchise these units, we can't innovate everywhere the way we want to because we've already, we've already sold the license, for instance. So I think, and, and the workplace is changing so fast. What happens when holograms comes to effect? What happens when people have maybe a less of a reliance on coffee shops what do we do when the immunity space of these amazing buildings becomes so good that people maybe won't leave and we have to change our footing and maybe become the immunity space of choice for these residential developers? If you do, if you want that iteration and agility, I don't think you can franchise. Yeah. Well, I don't know much about the franchising model in general, but um, you know, I, I know that certainly lots of people have made money through the franchising model and the real estate model, but uh, I applaud what you're accomplishing with Vell. I, I, it's V-E-L for those that are listening here. It's V-E-L, Vell. But I, I really uh, I really like it. And I also think just as a little tidbit of an idea is that a lot of times people want to go to the coffee shop to disconnect. They want to connect with some person, but they want to disconnect digitally. And so, but, but, but you can't escape because there's always, there's a Wi-Fi as ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And so um, maybe, maybe there's this spot in each Vell location, that's the disconnect. No phones allowed. Wi-Fi doesn't work in that area. That type of thing. That might be. I'm a member of a club here in Nashville, and they're building uh, something called the Vault, and it's a private room that cell phone signal will not work in. So if you need to have a private meeting, you can go in there. So I think people, more people, are wanting that that escape spot to get away from the dings and the bings and the buzzes and the vibrations of your phone and your laptop. So you may want to, that's a free idea you get for being on the show. <laughs> Duncan, you're, you're a genius. And I tell you why my hair is standing up because um, we're actually incorporating that. And we are, we're going to have these kind of phone booth pods at Vell. And each we're thinking about a personality for each pod, you know, a stimulation pod, a relaxation pod, but I think one of the pods is going to be exactly that. It's going to be this disconnection pod that you go in there and nothing will happen. It's just, it's just you um, without the stimulation of the world. One thing we're really trying to work at Vell is what does psychological safety mean? What happens because we're overstimulated? What, what, is, what is inherent? What are the fundamentals of flow? Um, are for you to be able to be in full stream productivity. What does that look like? And what stimulations do you need? What do you need to remove to be able to be in that zone? You know, that idea of limitless, you know, that movie, um, but organically speaking. So we're trying to build that with good hardware and good technology, good scent, good lighting, but also good direction, good user interface, which is what you described. If you're creating a vault, it's ushering a certain behavior that is acceptable, not acceptable. So no, it's really exciting stuff. And these ideas of, we actually have a behavioral scientist on our team. She used to be one of my professors. 
um, Professor Gabe, and she's helping us a lot with understanding these kind of dynamics. Great, man. Well, let me ask you this. Here, you're a successful guy. This, this is a show called The Root of All Success. How does Mo Hamzian define success? You definitely have to enjoy what you're doing. Um, that's, that's number one. Um, I, I, you have to be passionate. I, I'm built with singularly obsessed. I'm a kind of a dog with a bone personality um, and, and sometimes a bit of a bull in a china shop, uh, much more when I was younger. So I really, really have to enjoy going after my target, whatever that is. Otherwise, um, the drive won't be there. Um, because for you, for me to win the equivalent of my Olympic gold, and we'll talk about that, it requires an enormous amount of grit. <laughs> uh, and maybe a four-day week can cut it. Um, but I'll, even if you're working in those four days and not seven days, it requires an enormous amount of commitment and drive. You better enjoy it. So that's that's top of the metric. Um, Number two, you have to be really working with great people. That team is really, really important. I don't, I, 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 it's impossible to create wonderful things by yourself. So you have to be able to have a team that complements you. There's a certain level of trust. The product has to be right for success. There has to be a bigger mission, something much bigger than yourself that can galvanize you, your team, the product, the customer to make evangelists out of it. And you really have to solve major problems. Even if it's for a few people, it has to be a major problem um, and get behind it. And you have to earn money. Um, there has to be good revenue, good income for you to be able to do that because those are one of the metrics um, that shareholders care about, I care about. And, and then you have to be doing it at the right time. Um, you definitely, if it's too late, um, it's less interesting for me. If it's really, really too early, it's also less interesting for me. It has to be the biting point of doing something at the right time. Um, and then success is, is micro successes for me. It's about getting to certain destinations that I know I've got there and then moving from there. But honestly, I don't really think about every day what the success looks like for me. Um, I'm too busy doing um, at the moment. Um, ask me in a few years whether I'm successful, I'll tell you then. <laughs> Well, that was what I was going to ask you next. I mean, with that as a definition, what you just said, do you consider yourself to be successful? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm in a startup. I would always like to earn more money. Um, you know, <laughs> CEOs of an early stage startup, um, we earn, you know, very little. That's the right thing to do, by the way. But no, honestly, putting that aside, I love what I do. My team loves what they do. We're building something really, really great. Um, I, I feel I feel really lucky and, and I'm doing it. And, you know, you joke around, but I live in a, in a town with 10,000 people, but I've been able to create this with my co-founder because of this large single market, because of the attitude of the country. There's no way you could do this in a village out of France. Impossible. A village out of Poland, Germany. I mean, these are European countries, first world countries. Why? Because this, this single market is just incredible. Um, and, and I'm also very lucky to be here. Well, I know that um, the, the listeners to the show will know that the five keys of success that I always talk about on the show were born out of these types of conversations that I've had very casually with people over coffee or bourbon or cigars or dinner, or whatever it happens to be. And these five keys are you've mentioned almost every one of them in our conversation today already. Passion being the first one. And in your definition of success, you said that Pat, you have to be passionate about it. But what's interesting about that is that. Your definition of success, at least by the context of your answer, 
was the emotional side of passion, which is what most people think. It's about enjoying what you do. But what what I found is that passion, the key of the key to success uh, for when I say passion is the mental side of passion. It's the willingness to endure. And you use the word obsessed. And I had another guest on the show recently who said his his uh, preferred definition of passion is obsession, because as a successful entrepreneur, you have to be obsessed with what it is you're doing. Do you agree with that, uh, that concept? hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, I think to drive, if you want to become, um, you know, a leader or, or you have enormous aspirations to, to become, you know, the Frank Sinatra or, or the Elon Musk, n- not that many people become that, that, but that is your aspiration. That's your rudder. Um, it requires a high degree of commitment. Um, and you can't white knuckle that, <laughs> Um, you can't willpower that for five, yeah. seven years. It's impossible. Human beings aren't designed that way. Short-term willpower is okay, but you really have to fall in love with what you're doing. And you know, time just evaporates. And singularly obsessed requires focus at the same time. So it's really important to have singular obsession. And I think that too, you talk about <clears throat> the second key to success is being at the right place at the right time. So we talked about that dinner party and that dinner party, you are at the right place at the right time. So that's certainly played a part in your story. The third key is knowing the right people. Who are the right people in your story? Who are the people that helped you become who you are today? Um, lots. You know, immediate family. My wife is, is incredible, has been supportive for so many years, and we've been through thick and thin together. My parents, they've, they've taught me so much in different ways, soft and hard. Father teach me one thing, mother teach me another. But friends along the way, I, I, I believe enormously, and I do a lot of mentoring because I believe in that, this objective other person that can help you, which to some extent, this is what you do for a living, Duncan, this idea of coaching, um, this objective observer. But in the early days, I mean, you might, you might think this is delusional, but in the early days when I didn't have that mentorship, you know, in, in the 1990s, when, when it, you know, transparency wasn't there, I made them up. I read books of the greats and I said, what would she do? What would he do in this situation? What advice what they gave me, um, pure fiction, obviously, but based on some fundamentals. So I think um, you, you, you yourself, I think, a great source of great source of uh, great source of power as well. Well, thank you. And uh, the fourth key is preparation, and it's having the know-how to pull it off. And I think that part of what your story revealed is that you were prepared to be successful as a real estate investor. Um, and now as a, you know, and well, publishing real estate and now as a coffee, coffee guy, he's going to be developing the next big uh, coffee opportunity, coffee uh, experience for the consumer public. I think your preparation was in those teenage years of, of looking for to solve those problems. And, and, and you quoted quoted Matrix where, you know, if you're a problem solver, problems will find you. And I think what you found was there's a problem. There's a problem with the co-working space. There's a problem with the coffee space. Starbucks and, and Duncan have their place in our society and in the consumer consumer brain. But, you know, for me, that's those are not coffee shops that I go to on a regular basis, even though I know personal friends with one of the largest Duncan uh, franchisees, owner, owners, and and manufacturers in the country. Uh, we're good friends with. He's been a, he's been on my show, but I'm I'm not a frequenter of those places because I prefer, you know, those those smaller coffee shops. So I think your preparation to do what you're doing now came from that. And and then finally, plan. The key the key to success is plan. The fifth key 
And that's the a financial ability to do things. And I want to, I want to, I want to ask you a question. You said that you invested in your friend's publishing company, and then you used that capital when you sold your equity to go do the real estate. And then the real estate, of course, gave you the capital to do everything else. But where did you get that first amount of money to invest? I was sweat equity. Um, it was, it was building, I think it was building value in the business um, and then, and then selling that. Um, so, you know, if, if you have, if you're smart, I think, and you, you're, you're capable and you find an opportunity and you're willing to add value without much expectation in return, um, the greats have done it. Um, you, you're, you're unmissable. You will be unmissable. Uh, maybe today you'll be missed, but tomorrow you're unmissable. And then you can create and generate that momentum and value, especially if you're, if you're much younger. Um, so that's definitely possible. That's awesome, man. Well, Mo, it's been, it's been fantastic talking to you. I love your story. I love what you're doing. And you and I have a lot of similarities. So when you get to Nashville, you definitely need to come look me up. We need to hang out. Um, how would people get in touch with you? What is the best way for them to reach out and get in touch with you? I'm really active on LinkedIn. I, I really enjoy meeting new people. I'm sure it'll be in your show notes. Um, so find me there. Um, uh, we are also, you can find Vel at uh, work at Vel, which are the social media handles. And um, our domain is myvel. Funny story, we tried to buy vel.com, V-E-L.com, but the owners wanted $750,000 for it. So we politely said no. Um, the good news is no one else is going to buy it. So we're at myvel.com. You can find us there. And if you're ever in Savannah, make sure you look us up um, or Charlotte or Charleston or Jacksonville. Maybe we'll be in Nashville sooner than you think. That's great. Well, Mo, I'm going to give you uh, the opportunity to give a piece of advice on your way out of the show today. So if you're thinking about the people who are listening to this show, there's a lot of different entrepreneurs. There's early stage entrepreneurs and there's very successful entrepreneurs and everybody in between. <clears throat> what would your advice be to that first group, these earlier stage people? What, what's your advice, just general advice for them as entrepreneurs? It's not a glamorous piece of advice and it's not a quick fix, but I, I tell you this, I mean, I'm not going to paraphrase it properly, but I'm going to try and paraphrase it because I don't remember it properly. But um, Sylvester Stallone talks about this idea that he's not the tallest, he's not the strongest, he's not the most good looking, he's not the most talented, but he's the most hardest working actor out there, right? And this idea of perseverance and tenacity is incredible. It will yield this compound effect of momentum. It would yield incredible results. So um, hard work, I would say, be prepared for it. Use common sense. And you will get there. That's great. Great advice, Mo. Well, thank you for being on the show today very much. It's such a pleasure to meet you and to hear your story. And uh, just again, thanks for being here today, man. I enjoyed it, Duncan. Thanks so much. Well, there you have it. Another very successful entrepreneur sharing his story of how he became successful. And I think that if you're paying attention to what he talked about, you'll see that his definition of success revolved a lot around this idea of passion, the emotional side of passion, really enjoying what you want to do and what you're doing on a daily basis. And then he, of course, also talked about this need to be obsessive. And I liked what he said when he talked about the fact that willpower will only carry you so far. It's obsession that will carry the rest of the way. And I think that is a key that you as an entrepreneur need to understand and embrace and that really is where we're at with the, the mental side of passion. That's why I talk about on the show that the word passion means willing to suffer, willing to endure. That's what it actually the Latin root word of passion means. So if you're going to be successful, if you want to be successful and you don't have that level of passion, that willingness to suffer or endure, 
that obsession that's just beyond this pure enjoyment of what you're doing, then you're probably not going to be successful. The likelihood is not very, very high. Well, what I do every day as a business coach uh, is I help people just like you get to that place of success. As a matter of fact, my mission, my personal mission in life is to use my gifts of teaching and leadership to help people like you get the results that you want. So if you're looking for a business coach, you're looking for the opportunity to learn, how do I work less? How do I make more? How do I, what strategies do I need to put into place as an entrepreneur so I can get my business up and running? automated in such a way that I can go into that next big risk, that next big adventure, that next big innovation. Well, I want to invite you to look me up. Go to therealjasonduncan.com slash exit. Go to therealjasonduncan.com slash exit and check check that out. I've got this business accelerator. It's an eight hours of live group coaching that I do with people just like you eight hours of live coaching with me where I teach you the four strategies of how you can work less and make more. I talk about how you can embrace delegation. I'll teach you exactly a plan to delegate appropriately so that you can get technology and other people to do things that you're doing now, freeing up over 50% of your time. I will also teach you how to eliminate stress. There's this law called the law of open cycles that I'll show you how you can leverage that law in your personal life, your family life, and in your business life to eliminate stress so that you can see more clearly what should be worked on versus what you're just chasing around all the time as an entrepreneur. And then I'll teach you how to establish systems and processes because those are the things that are going to stand when you walk away from the daily operations, or at least you pull back a little bit. And I'll show you specifically my 20 point matrix, which will give you the opportunity to identify your ideal client within five minutes, sometimes five seconds. It's a very good tool that all of my clients use to identify their right opportunities and stop wasting time on people that are just kicking your tires and are terrible customers. And then the fourth strategy I'll teach you is how to invest in people. Yep. Investing in people is going to be the one of the keys to make sure that you get to work less and to make more. One of the things I'll share with you in that uh, live group coaching through the Business Accelerator is my 10-step plan on how to identify, hire, and onboard excellent employees. I figured out how to do that over my decade experience working with employees, hiring great people. I can show you exactly how to do that. So go to therealjasonduncan.com slash exit and read all about it. And I'll see you in the next Business Accelerator. Well, tune in again next week when I talk with yet another amazingly successful entrepreneur about his or her journey to success. Until then, I am the real Jason Duncan and Jesus is King. See you next time. Thank you for listening to another edition of The Root of All Success with the real Jason Duncan. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, we invite you to visit therootofallsuccess.com to access the show notes and other helpful resources. Take charge of your business. Grow it from great to incredible. Join us again next time here on The Root of All Success. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.